<clears throat> there I was walking out on the screen. You saw me two times. Hey, <laughs> that was awesome. Good morning and welcome to Crossroads Church. And uh, man, that was awesome. We baptized Olivia at nine o'clock service. And man, just an, an amazing time of celebrating what God has done in her heart uh, in a public way. And so, man, we are thrilled. That's what we're about here at Crossroads Church is seeing people's lives change because of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And so, um, man, welcome today. For those of you here at, at Thornton Campus, for those of you who are watching online, I want to welcome you. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, I get to be our pastor of care, which means that I uh, get to oversee and be a part of all of our uh, care-type ministries. So everything from funerals to counseling to our prayer ministry, uh, visitation, our Stephen ministry, all those things I get the priv privilege of serving in. And I also uh, get to the privilege of, of preaching now and then. And so this is one of those weekends, and we are in our second week of our series called Do Justice. And uh, the reason why we are doing this series called Do Justice is because we realize that right now, especially uh, at the forefront of our world, are uh, so many injustices all around the world. I mean, we don't have to look very far, do we, to see injustice after injustice happening all around the world. At the same time, we hear cries for, uh, for justice to be done. We, we, we hear the outcry for justice, but the, the, the difficult thing is that everyone has somewhat of a different understanding of what justice actually is. And sometimes it can be, be, become so polarizing that, that those who have the, 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 the loudest voices get to decide and define what justice really is. It can sometimes feel like a moving target. And so we ask the question, what if the idea of justice is actually not just based on uh, what we're doing here and our situations here, but what if it's a transcendent standard? Like, what if God has an idea of what justice actually is and that we can live by his standard of justice? You know, one of our values here at Crossroads Church is that we treat the Bible like we believe it. We don't just read it for fun, and we don't just pull certain things out of it, but we actually treat it as what it is, which is the inspired Word of God, and we live it out. We believe it. And when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the topic of justice, there's a, a couple of things we have to realize. Is that the Bible is clear that justice is one of the characteristics of God, that He is a God who is just, and that never changes and that, that when it comes to justice, it's both retributive and restorative, meaning that it, it both punishes evil and it restores victims. This is who God is. This is part of what he is like. The second thing that we have to understand and, and accept from Scripture is that mankind, human beings, are the only creation out of all creation that are created in the image of God. So when it comes to understanding justice, we have to realize those two important things. And when it comes to present day, there's four main issues that we're seeing all the time. And there's more than this, but, but these are the four things that are always in the forefront of news headlines and, and right in our faces. It's, it's those of race, poverty, sex, and life. And actually, according to a biblical worldview, justice in these four areas are, are, are required in order to have human 
flourishing. We can't just go after a couple of them for justice. We can't just go after three of them. We have to go after all four of these areas uh, in, in terms of what justice looks like in them. So then the question becomes, well, how do we do that? How do we respond? As those who are following Jesus, how do we lean into those conversations in a way that is God-honoring and biblically sound at the same time? Because here's the thing, is that the church should be leading the conversation when it comes to justice in these areas. That's our job, just as the early church was. In fact, the early church, they were, they were sold out for racial justice. That's what we're going to be talking about today. They were deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized. They were committed to sex being designed by God, and they were for life, speaking up for those who are powerless and vulnerable. So today, like I said, we're going to be talking about racial justice. And so to start off, I just want to kind of level the playing field and say this is a working definition of racism that we're going to be talking about today. It's this. It's the prejudice or the prejudgment, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or a people group based on their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group. Now, we all know that this has been a hot topic in our country for centuries, and especially in the last year or so, it's no exception. But we also know that this isn't just a topic that we, uh, ha- that, that we have problems with in our country, that it's around the world. In fact, over the last few years, I've been able to do some traveling, and, and uh, in both Lebanon and in Thailand, I've seen lots and lots of racism, and it's not just a white and black thing. But, but there's racism against other groups of people, other languages, what, where, where you're from. In Thailand, uh, it's the people that live in the Northern Hill tribes that, that, are, that are marginalized and devalued. In Lebanon, people come from parts of Africa and other parts of Asia, and, and, and they're promised work, like as a housemaid, but then their employer ends up losing their travel documents, so they can't travel home, and they, in essence, become slaves. You see, it's all around us. It's all around the world. And some would say that racism has been around since the beginning of time, but we know, according to the Bible, that that's not true. Because at the beginning of time, when God created everything and he created mankind, there was no sin. There was just one race. There was no division. It was the human race. But then shortly after that, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, sin enters the world and breaks everything. A few chapters later, we get to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a story about how everyone in the world came together and they wanted to be their own God and sort of create their own destiny. So they wanted to build this huge tower up to heaven. And as a result, God changed their languages and spread them out all over the earth. And you see it just begin to snowball and snowball where Division after division, countless reasons since then, geographically, culturally, uh, the color of your skin, customs, language, all these things began to bifurcate humanity over and over and over again. Tim Keller says it this way, if my highest love is my family, then I will privilege my family over others. If it's my business, my racial group, or my individual self-interests, I will privilege my race or myself over other races and selves. The result of sin is that humanity becomes divided into racial and cultural segregated ghettos that cannot 
understand one another. You see, when we see racism today, when we experience racism today, it's the result of thousands of years of divided humanity. And it's also really easy for us to think in extremes, okay? Now, here's what I mean, is that you might be thinking, well, I'm not... I'm not those people, like I'm not the ones who are marching in violent mobs. I'm not part of the KKK, I'm not whatever it is. And so what what happens is that we say, because I, I don't fit into one of these extreme groups, we exit out of the conversation. And we find ourselves on the sidelines. But what I would offer to you today is instead of extremes, instead of thinking of it in terms of extremes, think of it on a continuum, and, and yeah, on one side we do, we have these extremes, like the, the KKK, right? We, we have this blatant and obvious and often violent racism at play. And on the other side of this continuum is bias. Now, biases aren't bad. Biases aren't bad, they're not inherently good or bad, and we all have biases. So like when my, my son, Jackson, when he plays baseball, Guess who my favorite player on the field is? Jackson, right? And here's the thing about Little League Baseball. It's kind of funny to watch. But you can tell which parents in the stands belong to, which, to the batter, right? Because all of them are like this. Oh, and they do this, right? And you can tell who, oh, that's, that's his, their kid, right? And then the, when he hits, they're the one hooting and hollering, and everybody else is like, oh, yeah, well, that was kind of a lousy hit, you know? But, but you know, we all... <laughs> favor our kids when they're playing sports. But here's the thing is that, again, biases aren't necessarily good or bad, but sometimes biases make us behave differently. When my brother and I were young, we would take the bus sometimes with my parents to go downtown for, it was like an adventure, right? It was, this was kind of pre-video games, so we didn't really have anything else to do except sit around. And so my parents were like, hey, let's go downtown on the bus for the Parade of Lights or some other adventure. And so we loved it because, you know, RTD buses aren't just for transportation, but they're also like jungle gyms on wheels, right, for kids. Because you get in there and you all these handrails, and so my brother and I were just jumping around and swinging and, and having a ball, and my parents are trying to calm us down. We're not listening. But then the bus stops, and a couple of guys get on the bus, and, and these guys are dressed in like black leather, and they have change and, chains and, and spikes, and, and their hair, they have like these mohawks with these huge, like 15-inch purple spikes coming off their head, right? And my brother and I, we go and sit down next to our parents and fold our hands, and we were like perfect little angels the entire rest of our bus ride. Now, why would we do that? It's because we had a bias that affected our behavior. We had a bias that affected our behavior, but even that in and of itself isn't necessarily bad or wrong. In fact, if biases never affected our behavior, none of us would really survive too long. But here's where biases turn ugly. It's when we treat someone else as less than human. It's when we treat someone else as less valuable, less worthy. What it often looks like is that small little twinge in your heart, that that fleeting thought, that that question that that runs through your mind that, that looks like this, like a bias against a homeless person on the street or a bias against white collar workers or a bias against people who drive BMWs 
or bias against people of different faiths, or against those who live in a trailer house, or those who live in a bigger house than yours, or the five-car garage. Maybe a bias against those who use food stamps or who are divorced. Maybe it goes even a little bit deeper, and it's, it looks like wondering how that young man of a different color than you afforded such a nice car. Or maybe it's tightening your grip on your backpack or your purse when someone of a different color walks by. You see, these aren't subconscious biases. We are well aware of them. Oftentimes, we just don't even think about them. We get so used to them, we just stop noticing them. So here is my challenge for us today. Here's my challenge is, would you be willing to consider the possibility that maybe there's a bias that you hold that goes against everything that you declare you believe? Now, I'm not even saying that you have one, but would you be willing to consider that you might? Would you be willing to consider, would you be willing to stop and allow God to illuminate something in your heart that says, no, this isn't consistent with what God is saying? Would you be willing to consider that? Now, I want to say, please don't hear me wrong. Because if any of you get up and leave here today, or, or you're, you're done watching online, and you leave, and, and you think, man, I'm ticked off because Chris just called us all racist. Two things. One, you just weren't listening. You didn't hear me right. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. And number two, if there is a bias in your heart that's turned ugly, that's for you and God to point at. In fact, that's often the step that people skip because it's really easy, isn't it? And we see this all over the place where fingers are pointing at everybody else and other groups and other things and saying, that's the problem if they would fix it. And, and there's the problem if they would fix it. And, and we often skip the first step where we need to just look here, which is sometimes hard because we might see something that we don't like. We might see some dirty sin lurking in the crevices. But by the grace of God, we'll be able to illuminate those things and fi find healing. And, and I just want to say this too, that if, if something today that I say makes you angry, if something today that I say uh, is offensive to you, if, uh, if, if, you're, if you're just really raring to go, I would love to hear from you. I'd love for you to just email me uh, this week. And here's my email address. But seriously, would, would you pray with me as we look into God's word today and, and let's hear from, from God today. Father, we, we come to you today and we, we do, we ask for your help. God, we all have broken and sinful hearts because we live in a broken and sinful world, God, and there are parts of our hearts that we have forgotten about or that we overlook, that we don't think are that big of a deal. So God, would today, would you... Would you meet us where we're at? And Father, in your tenderness and in your gentleness, would you illuminate those parts of our hearts that are not in line with you? God, would you illuminate and, and bring about those parts of our hearts, Lord, that marginalize or exclude or devalue or dehumanize other image bearers of God? Lord, we're open to what you have to do in our hearts today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
We're going to be in Acts chapter 10, if you want to turn there and follow along. Uh, We're going to be in a story about two main characters, one named Cornelius and one named Peter. Peter rings a bell probably because he was a disciple of Jesus. He is now at this point uh, an apostle, one of the main leaders of the first century church. And in Acts chapter 10, we have this amazing story with the two of these men. It says this, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, uh, and prayed continually to God. And so there's this man named Cornelius. It's important to know that he is not a Jew. Now, back then, you might have heard the, to- the term Gentiles all right, the, the, there were two kinds of people. There were Jews, the Jewish people, and then there were Gentiles, which was everybody else. And Cornelius, because he was not a Jew, he was a Gentile, right? And not only that, but he was a bit of an enemy to the Jews because he was a part of the Roman Empire. He was a soldier, a, a ruling soldier within the Roman Empire, but Cornelius feared God. He and his family, they feared God. They, they knew that there was something there that they wanted to pursue. So then Cornelius gets visited by this angel. And this angel comes to him and says, hey, Cornelius, I want you to send a couple of your servants to this town called Joppa. Joppa is about 40 miles south on the coast of the Mediterranean there from Caesarea. Joppa is like modern day Tel Aviv. I want you to send a couple of people down to Joppa and, and find this man named Simon, also known as Peter. And I want you to bring him back to your house to minister to you and your family. And so these two men pack up and they head 40 miles south to Joppa. And picking up in verse 9, it says this. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, rightly so, as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, two men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Let's stop there for a second. So Peter has this crazy vision of this big sheet being let down with all these animals that traditionally, and according to law, Jewish people would never eat these animals. And God telling him, kill and eat. And he's like, what? What do you want me to do? Like, I would never do this. Why would you ask me to do that? And and God's answer was, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. And so Peter is like thinking about this and he's wondering, and he hears from the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit says, Peter, there's some men looking for you. And when they come, I want you to go with them. So Peter's like, okay, I'll go with them. And so picking up uh, in verse 25, they they head back up to Caesarea, back up to Cornelius' house. 
And in verse 25, it says this, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am only a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? I'm going to go back and read part of verse 28 one more time, because there's a really key word here. It says this. And Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now let's stop right here for a moment, because what is Peter talking about? What does he mean when he says, it's unlawful for me to be here? If you've been familiar with church or the Bible for a while, you might think, oh, well, he's referring to the law. He's referring to the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments sort of thing, Charlton Heston, right? That, that's somewhere written down in the Old Testament out of the hundreds of laws that God gave to his people. There's a law in there somewhere that says, you know, if you're Jewish, you should not go and hang out at Gentiles' house, right? But here's the problem. That law didn't exist. That law is not anywhere in there. It's not, it's not there. So what does Peter mean when he says that's unlawful for me to be here? The word that he uses in the Greek is a word that basically means it's, a, it's prohibited under social custom. It's against social norms. It's like a cultural faux pas. Sort of like if you go out to lunch with one of your coworkers, and, and uh, while you're out to lunch, your, your, your food finally comes to the table and your coworker immediately reaches across the table and grabs some french fries off your plate, right? Now, yeah, right, that's a no-no. How many of you would be okay with that? Okay, a couple of you. Man, you're way more like Jesus than I am. Because I'd be like, get your own french fries, man. Like, you could buy them. And then after you're done eating, he kind of sits back in his chair and he plops his feet up on the table, right? And you're like, okay, that's weird. Like you don't typically do that in a public restaurant. And then when the check comes, your, your coworker grabs the ticket and pays for it. But then you notice that he doesn't leave a tip for your server. Now, here's the thing. None of these are unlawful. Nobody's going to get arrested for doing these things. I mean, you might get arrested after you punch him for taking your french fries, but none of these things are unlawful. It's, but what it is, is it's a cultural no-no. It's a cultural faux pas. And here's the thing. As big as that might feel, it really pales in comparison to what was going on here in this story. In fact, author John Stott explains it this way. He says, It's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other hand. Not that the Old Testament countenances such a divide. It affirmed that God has purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he, he intended to bless all the families on the earth. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism becoming filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. You see, the Jews 
thought they were better than everyone else, and everyone else knew it. In part, we see that when Cornelius bends down and starts worshiping Peter. You see, culturally, this is how they viewed Jews and Gentiles. And here, when Peter says it's unlawful, he says, look, Cornelius, you and I both know I shouldn't be here. You and I both know that this is a no-no, that culturally, that this isn't how it works, that we are divided, we are on different teams, and on many levels, we are enemies of each other. So the question is, is, well, what happened in Peter's mind and heart that he would break such a cultural barrier? What allowed him to, to do that with such boldness and confidence? You see, it all goes back to this vision that he had, this vision that he had of these sh- the sheep being let down from heaven, full of all of these unclean animals and, and being told to kill and eat. Now, this vision wasn't only about food, but really what it was is it was God moving the boundary lines. God making good on his promise to bless the entire earth through the nation of Israel. It was God saying, look, Peter, no longer is there this big dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. No longer do you need to treat other people as unclean, as not part of God's people. I'm doing a new thing. I'm changing things up. I'm starting to implement my kingdom. And in my kingdom, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And it's not based on your pedigree. It's not based on your skin color. It's not based on your good works. It's not based on your heritage. It's not based on your culture or your language. It's a kingdom that's based on the grace and mercy of God because of what Jesus did on the cross, making level the playing field for every human being. You see, as image bearers of God, it supersedes all of our other identities. As citizens of heaven, it supersedes all of our other identities. And that is a picture of what true racial justice looks like. That all mankind are created equal that every single face you come into contact with, every, every single eye you look into is, is a person who's created in the image of God and invited into that same kingdom. That they are fearfully and wonderfully made, just like you are. It's extending the same grace to everyone else, that they would find new life and find unity and actually find racial reconciliation. You see, this is... This is what works. Why? Because the ground at the cross is equal level ground. And so to wrap up this story of Cornelius, they all hear Peter's words. They all come to faith in Jesus. They all get baptized. They all all receive the Holy Spirit and start speaking in other tongues just like the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. This amazing turning point in the history of the church. You see, God set up this amazing, miraculous account for two reasons. One, to bring salvation to Cornelius and his house, and two, to deconstruct for Peter these incredible, incredibly strong barriers and walls around the Jews and the Gentiles. And really for us today, you see, this was the turning point. If this never happened, you and I wouldn't be here today because it was, it was in this moment in this situation where the Jewish church leader said, okay, then to the Gentiles also. You see, this was a huge turning point for the entire world. 
And it's all based on this idea that if you are an image bearer of God, then the hope of God, the hope of the gospel is extended to you. You see, this is one of the central messages as you read through the book of Acts, that the gospel, the message of the gospel is a spreading throughout the, the entire, word, entire world, first to Samaritans, then in chapter 8 to the Africans, then in chapter 10 to the Romans, then in chapter 11 to the Greeks. And do you see the big picture? If you were to pull out to the 30,000-foot view and, and look at this, you see the big picture where it all started really good back then, and then sin kind of broke everything, and then after that, division after division after division, and then Jesus comes and puts a stake in the ground and says, I'm establishing my new kingdom, which is both now and to come. You see, what we get to experience is a glimpse into what's to come, and in Revelation chapter 7, we see what is to come. This vision that John has, and he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Man, it's a beautiful picture, and that is in part why the vision of our church is that we are multi-generational and multi-ethnic, making disciples of our kids and our grandkids, because what that is is a picture of what's to come, a picture of future glory. It's what's important to God that one day every tribe and every nation and every skin color and every people group and every village will be represented there before the throne of the Lamb of God. So what do we do? There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk around this subject, but what do we do? Well, there's three things. We repent, we cling, and we demonstrate. Repent, cling, and demonstrate. Is there a bias that's lurking in your heart that's crossed over the line? Is there a, a, a fleeting thought or a fleeting question or a fleeting emotion that devalues and de degrades other image bearers of God? Well, what we have to do is we have to call it what it is and we have to repent of that, to turn from it. This is what Peter did, is he turned from it. We need to stop and, and maybe take a moment, uh, maybe even take a week and say, Holy Spirit, would you just illuminate those parts of my heart that, that fall into this category? Illuminate those, those dirty corners. Because here's the thing, all racism and all bias that degrades other human beings is all centered around this root cause called self-righteousness. What it is, is it's looking at other people and it's saying, I'm better than you because of this. I'm better than you because of that. And all that it is, is an attempt to try to make ourselves feel better. It's an attempt to try to gain and earn our salvation by our own righteousness. And if that's you today, man, you gotta, you gotta turn from that. And then the second thing is that we have to cling after we repent, we cling to the cross, to what Jesus has done, that you and I were in such bad shape 
That there's nothing that we could do on ourselves, nothing that we could do in our own power that would, that would earn salvation, that would make us any more righteous before a holy and just God. We have to cling to the cross, to the sacrificial death that Jesus took in our place. And when we cling to the cross, there is no room for racism. There is no room for bias that devalues other image bearers. We remember who we are and who he is. We have to cling to the cross. And if you haven't done that yet, if you're at a place where you're like, man, I don't know what that means. I haven't done that, but I, but I know what I've tried and I'm tired and I'm exhausted and I, and I feel empty and I've really tried to be good, and, but I can't ever be good enough. Well, I just want to encourage you today that the invitation is open to you as it's always been. The invitation to come to Jesus, to trust him, to, to give your life to him. It costs you a lot. It costs your life. But you couldn't surrender your life to anyone who would love you anymore. You couldn't surrender your life to anyone who would forgive you more. You couldn't surrender your life to anyone else who would give you so much fulfillment and meaning in life than you can with Jesus. If that's you today and you are ready to make that decision, we don't want you to have to do that on your own. We want to talk with you, pray with you, answer questions you might have. Just text the name Jesus to this number on the screen and a real-life person will get back in touch with you. And then finally, we demonstrate. We demonstrate, actively demonstrate the community of God, the kingdom of God, this different kind of kingdom, this different kind of citizenship that we as followers of Jesus get to be a part of. How do we do that? We do that by walking into Cornelius' house. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to walk into Cornelius' house this week? Is there someone that you work with that you've been trying to avoid? Is there someone that you work with that deep down in the corners of your heart you have these biases against them that just sort of devalue? Is it maybe going and having lunch or maybe simply having a conversation with someone of a different color and asking them about their experiences? What does it look like for you to to break maybe a cultural barrier or maybe a barrier that you've built in your own heart and step across that line and enter Cornelius' house. You see, we go and we love people. And in doing so, we demonstrate a better way and a better kingdom. And we get to be a part of living out Jesus' prayer when he said, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we come to you today and we confess to you that we need you, God. God, every single one of us have, have been there we've, where we've tried to earn our own salvation or, or whatever we want to call it, God. We've tried, to, we've tried to be good enough. We've tried to be righteous enough, God, and we acknowledge that we aren't, we can't. And Father, I pray that you would, that you would continue to illuminate those parts of our hearts that might be hiding some ugly biases or racism. God, would you bring those to the surface that we might be able to turn from them and in so doing, cling to the cross and demonstrate what it looks like to be a part of the community of God. We thank you for it. And it's in your good name we pray. Amen. You know, this is why every weekend here at Crossroads Church, we 
remember Jesus' sacrifice by taking communion together. The bread, which represents his body that's been broken for us. And the cup, which represents his blood that's poured out for us, for you and I, for the forgiveness of sin for all who believe. Let's remember together. Friends, we're going to spend some time responding to God and and, and what he's like today by singing, whether you're here or watching online. During this time, we have people who are eager to pray with you, both here in-house in the back corner over here, and also online. If you just click the button for prayer, someone would love to pray with you. So why don't we stand together as we respond to God's goodness today? As we continue.